The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. So we have a special guest for you today. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Alvelda, who is the CEO of BrainWorks. Hi, Dr. Philip. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. How are you doing? Oh, very much my pleasure. Good to see you on this Friday. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at BrainWorks. Oh, perfect. I have been working in AI since back in the 80s at NASA, where I worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And at the time, we were building the first digital camera sensors to fly on space shuttle missions. And the Department of Defense showed up and began to ask questions about, well, can you track other things? Like, I don't know, maybe missiles. (laughs) And you might remember the mid-80s was the era of Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative known as the Star Wars program. And at the time, though it's hard to imagine today, you know, the computers we were lofting into space on these satellites, they had about the same processing power as your Fitbit does today. And so the regular computer architectures and those limited systems, we could barely get them to control spacecraft, much less do you know difficult computer vision or cognitive computing types of tasks. And so the answer at that moment was no, but we have some ideas about what we could do as we begin to look at the human brain and what even tiny children are capable of with vision and cognition. And can't we begin building new types of computers to mimic some of those capabilities. And so I became the first hire in their neural computation and nonlinear science group and worked quite closely with the scientists at Caltech there to begin developing that capability. But all through that time, I later went to MIT and did my PhD work at the Artificial Intelligence Lab there, where Rod Brooks and Marvin Minsky were very formative in my early career as a student and eventually a graduate student and postdoc researcher. And then after that, I began building companies in Silicon Valley for quite some time, a few of them more successful than the others. And then there was a moment when the new genetic engineering technology, the synthetic biology technologies came around. And I realized it was possible to finally, first of all, peer into the brain with new precision. We could engineer neurons to write synthetic DNA codes to manufacture proteins that would make neurons optically active so that when you shine light on them, you could make them fluoresce when a neuron would fire. So for the first time, you know, at a very, very large scale, we could look and see what the brain was doing. And then we could begin to really parcel out what was possible and think of interfacing machinery to it. Long story short, I ended up at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the government agency that funded the creation of computers, the internet, stealth technology, GPS, all you know the underpinnings of modern society, really. And went there specifically to create a new industry and catalyze the new research activity into a kind of industrial capability to make direct brain-machine interfaces. And over that period of time, I spent some time distributing about $175 million of government grant and contract money over three continents to the very brightest and most capable neuroscientists and electronic engineers and computer scientists, really four or five really key disciplines that that historically didn't work so much together, and spooled up an entire new industry that is now based on reinventing what we know in neuroscience and being able to control and communicate with things just with thought. And so as I left DARPA a couple years ago, actually a little over a year ago now, mid-2017 actually, I'd say, so two years, I began to take that technology and imagine how could we apply these new learnings in neuroscience to develop a next generation of artificial intelligence that was even more capable than the growing deep learning types of technologies we're beginning to see have a real impact in society today. 
And so that was the founding of Brainworks, where we started to spool up kind of an IP engine and a business planning engine to think about, you know, how could we apply these new thinking machines that are intelligent and trustworthy and apply them to solving really difficult global challenges and not just kind of advertising optimization and insurance optimization types of problems. And so the last year has been, you know, putting this company together and imagining what we might do. Well, great. Well, as you know, and for a lot of our listeners who have been following a lot of our work, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning and cognitive technology, the whole range is finding its way into many industries and many applications from the grandiose, you know, machines operating in space and autonomous vehicles to the very mundane, you know, just predictive analytics and pattern matching. But it's everywhere. And I think that's really great. That's the promise of AI. And that's really what's going to allow AI to continue to develop. But of course, as it's becoming more and more a part of our daily lives from these recommendation systems. We hope you're enjoying this podcast and sorry for the brief interruption. Cognolytica not only produces the AI podcast that you're listening to right now, but we also generate research and advisory to help companies make sense of AI and cognitive technologies. We also run the most authoritative vendor-neutral AI and machine learning training and certification on the market. If you're looking to make AI a reality for your organization, our three-day Cognolytica training is for you. If you're interested in attending, you can find pricing and registration on our website at Cognolytica.com. We'll also provide a link in the show notes. We've met many of our podcast listeners in our classes, and we hope that we'll see you there as well. Now back to the podcast. Recommendation systems that you mentioned, you know, even other trivial side to these much more complicated technologies to computer vision systems. People are starting to wonder now about the trustworthiness and the reliability and other aspects of responsibility and ethics. So maybe you could talk a little bit to that point, especially when we're talking about, you know, human machine interfaces. You know, how important is it to have these trustworthy and reliable AI systems and how can we go about thinking about them that way? Yeah, you know, I think this is an absolutely critical conversation that more people need to be having. And the important realization for the general consumer, most people may think naively at this point that AI doesn't really have anything to do with them. But it turns out that every time you go to the supermarket and ring up a purchase and enter your identification number, anytime you open up the channel guide on your DVR and make recordings and decide, you know, what should I watch? Without realizing it, these sorts of technologies are already operating on you. They're determining what the channel lineup is that you see, what programs are placed first, what do you have access to? What can you find realistically in the limited time you have to look around? And what are your behaviors and how can I exploit them? You know, there's a great case where not too long ago, Target doing some deep analytics was able to determine when women were pregnant before they even realized it because their shopping preferences in terms of scented soaps versus unscented soaps and and other things like that would betray the fact that they had become pregnant because their behavior changes in a way that was detectable to AI. And so then they began sending out, you know, kind of baby preparation oriented marketing flyers to the people that they discovered were pregnant, even before the people would know. And there was one famous case where they sent it to the father of a pregnant teenager. (laughs) And then, you know, a court case ensued. And there was, of course, some, you know, public concern over, you know, how invasive the technology was. And the response of Target was actually quite telling. Instead of just discontinuing the practice and saying, oh, we're sorry, you know, we're going to change how we do the marketing so it's not quite so invasive, what they did was they continued to use the technology and the marketing, but they added other random posts at other times so that it would be hidden amongst a more confusing marketing offering so that they couldn't actually identify how they were doing the targeting so effectively anymore. So they obfuscated it and used the technology to continue their market leverage and growth instead of discontinuing something that made people uncomfortable publicly. So I think the conversation, I think, needs to be one not just of 
you know, what is the technology capable of, but what sorts of invasiveness are we comfortable? What sort of privacy rights are we willing to give up? And I think the challenge of today is that this is already happening and is being implemented over a wide set of company practices that you wouldn't even realize. I'll give you another example. Not too long ago, we were looking at purchasing a BMW vehicle. And one you know, vehicle lease had ended, we were looking at purchasing another one. And no matter how we tried to build our vehicle in the custom website, the same vehicle from you know, one lease cycle to the next, all of a sudden the price seemed to have gone up by about you know, fifteen or $20,000 on the material goods that we wanted to buy that were effectively the same as the last cycle. And doing a little bit of research, we discovered there was really a capable AI system that had been employed to figure out how to distribute all the features and package them in such a way that they extract the maximum amount of revenues from the consumer. So we're not getting anything more, but AI is being used to extract more from us financially in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit. So I think the types of conversations I would like to see happen more broadly are ones where we're engaging and putting AI technologies not just in the service of companies that would like to make more money from us and be more extractive from the economy, but how can we put these technologies in service with companies on the side of the consumer and the patient and the student being educated rather than those that are trying to exploit them? And so that, I think, is an area that I'd like to see much more attention. Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up those cases because I think that people don't always realize how much AI they use on a daily basis and how much it's actually within their daily lives from recommendation systems or to, you know, targeted ads that you get. Now, you had mentioned that you have backgrounds with both DARPA and JPL. So you have a lot of government exposure and then private industry as well. What role do you see governments playing with regards to responsible and ethical AI? Yeah, that's a great question. The challenge when you find areas like AI, like the internet, is that you have some technologies and capabilities that are, you know, scientifically and technically challenging to understand. How are they complicated? What are the interdependencies and relationships of demand and operations and concern? And part of the challenge of government is that it's very rare that they have at their disposal either the inclination or the technical capability to build kind of competent analysts and operations to even make the right decisions because there's just a complete lack of understanding of how the internet operates. And you don't have to look very far. You know, most of our Congress, no idea. And that's the internet. We're not even talking about AI. The internet's been around for more than 20 years, and now we still have a governing body that is not technically capable of making the right decisions just because they don't have the background and they're not taking the time to kind of tap or listen to, anyway, some of the more kind of forward-thinking ethicists that are technically steeped in the area. So I think when you come to areas like AI, this is an even more difficult conversation than things that the government is already struggling with. And so the question is, you know, is regulation the right answer? I don't think so at this stage. You know, the challenge you have with a technology like AI is that it is incredibly powerful. And when you look at, you know, some of the global challenges we face, like feeding the starving and figuring out how to get renewable energy at scale so that it's so low cost that everyone can have it. You know, we face not challenges of abundance, but challenges of efficiency. We have plenty of food for everyone, but we're not distributing it. We have plenty of energy for everyone, but we're not tapping the right types of resources and we can't get them in the right places. So these are challenges of complexity and efficiency. So the AI can be applied to all of these 
and be transformative on a global level. But if they're regulated and constrained, and just at a time when they're being developed, you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and kind of killing one of your best hopes of creating a better future. So what is an alternative? I think there would be probably greater benefit by finding mechanisms to have the industry develop certification processes and using trust mechanisms that have started to become powerful in systems like you know Uber and others where they have rating systems for the drivers. If you get poor ratings, you don't get sales. So you know the quality of an Uber experience for the consumer is way better than being in a taxi system. Even though the taxi system is heavily regulated, the Uber system is unregulated, but it has an intrinsic social trust mechanism with kind of certification just by the general public that is using the technology. So I think those types of mechanisms are tend to be more powerful and more allowing in kind of the early innovative growth stages of these new capabilities. Well, so excellent. I would favor you know, certification over regulation, especially if we can engage a good, informed community to participate and drive that. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a large part of the conversation that's going on worldwide. You know, there's a lot of folks who are thinking about AI, of course, and from our perspective, that's very important. But they're thinking about data in general. As you know, people have really thought about now, I guess people woke up to the idea that companies are storing data about them and they're using that data in ways that they may or may not be aware of or may or may not even be too happy about, obviously. We have some big cases that come to mind and sort of as a result, you know, there have been some, you know, worldwide regulations or at least regional regulations that kind of have worldwide impact, even if they're only meant to be regional, to help sort of help guide the use and adoption and sharing and privacy of data and how it's being applied. And of course, that's going to have impact on AI because AI is so data centric. And, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, we've seen a lot of this pushback, you know, around privacy from the average citizen, you know, not even the technologist, the corporations are just like the average citizen. You're are starting to push back on privacy and data. And as you know, in the European Union, they passed regulations like the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which governs at many aspects of data privacy and usage. And we're seeing, of course, other areas of emerging of regulation here in the U.S., and what's happening in other regions. So, you know, obviously, uh, AI is so data-centric. So how do you think all this regulatory movement is going to impact AI? And, you know, where do you think this sort of control and regulation and governance of AI should happen? You know, at the company level, the government level, you know, both. Just kind of curious to get your feedback on that. Well, I think uh, the challenge, of course, is that in principle, the regulatory idea sounds like a good idea. And I think that GDPR is a great example of something that was well-meaning, but when it came to the intricacies of how do you structure the policy and, you know, what comes out of the lobbying and legislative process, you end up with something that, A, doesn't really work or be effective, and B, is kind of unenforceable. And so, yeah, they've got the regulation, but, you know, it's become more burdensome for small companies, and it doesn't really provide the protection that it was intended to provide. So was it worth it? I don't think so. Could there be alternative mechanisms? You know, I don't think we've made a good try at a good alternative yet, so I, I couldn't recommend one over. But let me give you a couple of examples of why the GDPR type of legislation is full of so many holes that it's effectively useless. One is just in terms of what it requires and what changed in terms of data handling. And I think that it's important to understand that when you go to a website now, that the major change that you see as a consumer is that uh, when you first go to the website and approach the content for the first time, usually some sort of pop-up block window comes up and says, hey, you know, just be aware that you know, we're complying with the GDPR requirements and please click here to accept our terms of use and our privacy policy in order to use our website. And so what does everyone do? They click the button and they begin using the website. 
how many people do you suspect, you know, kind of delve into the EULA and the user agreement and the privacy policy and reject the terms and don't use the website? You have a guess? Like what percentage? <laughs> oh, what people accept the terms or, or don't accept the terms and don't use the website? The, the ones that actually take the time to review oh, and reject a, the terms. That's already like 0.001%. 0. 0. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe 0.03 exactly. is what I was thinking. It's, okay, you're, you're being generous. Many, not very many people at all. And other than that pop-up blocker, right? You know, what material change do you think the websites and the web operators have made to their business to enhance that protection? Oh, I'll yeah. tell you, it's minimal. <laughs> and so in that sense, they, what you end up with is kind of what I would call faux compliance. Yes, we're compliant with GDPR, but does the consumer have any additional protection from that? No, they do not. You know, another example, you know, suppose the right to forget. You know, it's one of the European data handlers in a couple of countries now. So, yes, you can ask a website to remove your public data that it has stored or collected from you. And now that little piece of your digital trail is excised from the public record. Now, how much do you think that really affects a broad AI system that has done large-scale web trolling to connect all of the publicly and privately available and purchasable data from databases, many of these companies of whom collect this data and distribute and sell it online as their fundamental business model? How much of your data record do you think it is easy for you to delete? Turns out, not very much. (laughs) And what you delete by fiat it turns out that the AI systems are so sophisticated that they can basically piece that out anyway from the rest of the public data around you. You know, there were some kind of early indicators that that was going to be an issue when you looked at the types of data that Facebook and Google and some of the others were collecting just about where you went and how much data was coming off of your phone and flowing into these other companies. And the fact that when you use an app and you kind of allow access and grant that little automatic, yes, I've read your user agreement, please let me use your app, that's when they start streaming all the location data of where you were. And they can pretty much guess where you're going to be on any given day at any time with about 60 to 70% accuracy. Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you choose you know, one particular company or even five particular companies to delete most of your data. Most of that data has already been packaged and sold. So, you know, it's like there's no going back from kind of the digital trails we've left so far. We've kind of made that decision unawares. Yeah, you know, we always talk about that, that I think sometimes people have given away data and they still don't even realize how much data you're actually giving away. So I know that Brainworks is building trustworthy intelligence systems. And why do you think it's so important to bring this type of product into the market now? Well, I think, you know, we've kind of been dancing around it for the last few minutes. And, you know, the need for these types of technologies, people are starting to realize that in terms of privacy, there's some issues. In terms of location and where you go, there's some issues where we'd like to be a little more protective and hold a little more closely some of that data and information. And a lot of it is tied into not just, you know, what are we collecting, but whether or not you can trust not just an AI, but the company that built the AI to act in your interest. And when companies have a business model where, for example, they derive revenue from attention and what they really want to apply their AI to is to seize your attention. And here, you know, uh, Tristan Harris gave a great talk last year here in D.C. And, you know, one of his kind of uh, signature comments that captured my imagination was, you know, whenever you press that little blue F icon on your phone and you fire up Facebook, what you've done is you've fired up the world's largest artificial intelligence that has the fundamental business goal of capturing and keeping your attention for as long as possible in order to maximize ad revenue. And the whole system is engineered to excite, you know, with your likes, 
and your posts and your comments and which content it shows you and which content it doesn't show you, specifically to do that longer than you would ordinarily do to the point where we now know it's unhealthy for kids who are very susceptible to that dopaminergic endorphin hit of social acceptance through those little likes and so on, where they don't have the executive function to stand off the assault on their attention. And so now, of course, you know, you start talking about things like addiction, but this is because you cannot trust some of these companies that have a revenue model to extract value from you at your expense. And so I think the question deep in our minds is it's not just a question about ethical AI. It's a question about ethical AI companies that are building systems and how are they using it and to what end. So when we begin to build brainworks, what we have really taken on as a company mission is the goal to put AI to work on behalf of citizens, consumers, and patients, and not extractive services just for financial value. And so the types of problems that we're working on are, you know, how can we enhance and automate and create next generations of digital health systems that improve the patient experience and the doctor's experience and reduce the cost so much in their automation that we can expand how many people have access to healthcare that before couldn't afford it. Yeah. So that's the type of mission that we want to put AI in the service of. And, and yes, we expect to derive some financial value from that, but not in terms of being you know, extractive. Our goal is to use that financial engine to have more and more global impact to benefit humanity. So it's kind of a coupled social responsibility mission with a build a better future goal as a company. And I think that the issue of trustworthy machines is so closely tied to trustworthy companies that can do it, that they're, it, both of them really need to be part of the conversation. How do you certify the companies? How do you certify the machines and ensure that they can do and will do things to benefit people? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, we always keep a close eye on how everything evolves. So this has been a very informative podcast and thank you so much. We'd like to end this by hearing your thoughts on where you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the bedrock of my life these days. You know, when we began building BrainWorks, our realization, of course, was that the new discoveries in neuroscience were really clearly pointing to some astounding opportunities of what could we do by building more complete artificial brains. And so when I, if you ask me to describe the state of current AI, you know, we're seeing marvelous new automated systems that solve what I would call narrow problems. So, you know, the ones that are, you know, most widely deployed are the types of technologies where, you know, you've got Alexa, you know, Amazon's Alexa and Apple's Siri, Google's voice assistant that can listen to a stream of text and extract a word. So it's a very narrow problem. You've got, you know, word segments, you've got strings of speech, you pull the word out. So that's replicating a few square centimeters of the auditory cortex. You know, another great application area is in facial recognition where, you know, Google photos and Facebook photo posts, image posts, they can now scan and identify your friends and your own faces in any of the images that you upload. That too is a narrow problem, very specific, replicating a couple square centimeters of the visual cortex. And so if you look at deep learning, it's becoming more and more powerful, but so, so far that the industrial impact has been on narrow problems. And so I think that the biggest opportunities for growth and expansion as a technology base is in building some of the other parts of the brain that bring in higher order thinking into our artificial machines. So how do you, in effect, take our machines through puberty? How do you give them executive function, judgment, ethics, be able to ask more complicated questions that involve multiple senses, memory? 
expectation. All of these things are now fairly well understood in terms of the general brain architecture in humans and as to what are the pieces of the machine that we haven't built yet and haven't yet applied to AI. So our goal at BrainWorks is to choose a couple of the most impactful ones and begin building them to have broad global benefit and create more complete brains that do more complex things. But underneath it all, we'd like to have this trustworthy system foundation that people can believe in, both the company and the technology we build. Well, I think definitely the conversations that we're having, both in, with private sector companies, large end users, these are not technology companies necessarily. They're banks and their financial services institutions, insurance and healthcare, pharmaceutical, manufacturing, retail and automotive. You know, across all of those, they're all looking actively right now at applying these various AI technologies to a variety of different problems. And as I mentioned before, you know, some of them very boring, but important ones, you know, to improve customer service and to improve overall efficiency and operations and provide a better experience for their users and even enhance their products in ways that will make them useful. So this is kind of the right time, you know, as we like to think about, you know, kind of where is AI right now? Has it crossed the chasm? You know, for those folks who follow Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm, are we still in this early adopter innovator phase where it's only really these exceptional people who are doing some interesting things on the fringes? Or have we entered this early majority phase where this is now becoming the next big transformative wave that's going to push all of industry forward? Of course, we believe that we've crossed this chasm at some point. So that means it's going to impact even the most mundane company. You'll walk into your Dunkin' Donuts and there'll be AI in front of you. You'll walk into some regional bakery and there'll be AI in front of you. That's how you know the era of AI is here, right? And McDonald's recently bought an AI company. So we're keeping a close (laughs) eye on what's happening there. That's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, the the trend is, is interesting. I think what I'd like to highlight, you had mentioned earlier, AI is already there. And when it's done properly, people don't even notice. Exactly. It's already happening all around them. And it is now so pervasive in you know little individual slices of life. But I think by highlighting them, you guys are performing an important public service that to realize how impactful it has been so far, even in its earliest stages, and how transformative it can be in the future. And so I think that especially for the legacy companies that have begun to have pretty good data analytics and are, are collecting a lot of information about how their business operates and what consumers need and will pay for, you know, they have an unbelievable opportunity to take and find fledgling companies that have these new capabilities and share their data and work together to be, you know, really transformative. So it's a, it's very much an exciting time. And you guys, I think, are playing an important role here. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I think our listeners really enjoy this podcast. We want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and being part of the AI Today podcast. My great pleasure. Have a great Friday afternoon and my best to everyone. Yeah, thank you. And listeners, thanks for joining us today. We'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter, and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group, and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.